Welcome back to iGen Politics. This is a podcast that makes politics engaging and relevant for all generations. This is Victor Sheep. And I'm Jill Wine Banks. And today's hashtag Jill's Pin is an open book. And that's because we're talking to Barb McQuaid, one of my special sisters in law. And we're talking about her brand new book, Attack from Within, about a very important and highly relevant topic for today's world. Absolutely. And those topics are misinformation and disinformation, which have existed for a very long time. But now they seem to be more prevalent and present a greater danger to the future of our country and democracy than we have ever witnessed. Because of the number of available sources and channels, many of which go unvetted, combined with the lack of civics education and news literacy, misinformation and disinformation have exploded at unprecedented rates. That is why, for instance, at least 30% of the country believes that Donald Trump and MAGA extremists won the election in 2020. That's also why we still have a large segment of our population who are unvaxxed. No longer can we agree on the facts. Can something be done about this, though? Well, I still remember an era when facts mattered and where Democrats and Republicans disagreed about policy implications, but agreed on the facts. But lucky for us today, we are joined by Barb McQuaid, and she is the perfect guest to talk about how it's become as bad as it is and what we can do to undo this, to fix the problem, not just the government, but by the actions of each and every one of us. Barb is a professor at the University of Michigan Law School. She is an MSNBC legal analyst and, of course, one of my dear friends as a member of the hashtag Sisters in Law podcast. Uh, Previously, Barb served as the U.S. attorney for the Eastern District of Michigan, where she had also been an assistant U.S. attorney before that, where she garnered a lot of experience in national security cases. And that was what motivated her and made her an expert enough to write the book that she has just written, Attack from Within, How Disinformation is Sabotaging America. And that is Attack from Within, not the Russian sabotage, although of course she will talk about that too. But it's really an important subject. And so it is really great to have Barb with us today. We are very grateful. Thank you for being with us, Barbara. Oh, well, thanks, Jill. I'm just thrilled to be here with you and Victor. We are so excited for this conversation, and there are so many important things we want to discuss um, with you about your book, um, which couldn't be more important uh, to our current moment in which misinformation and disinformation have proliferated really at unprecedented um, rates. I know you started your book before the topic was top of mind for so many. So I want to ask you, talk about why you wrote this book specifically now. Yeah. So, you know, I started working on this book two and a half years ago. But it really comes from an interest in national security law. As a prosecutor and assistant U.S. attorney, I was a national security prosecutor. And I've watched the threats to national security evolve from al-Qaeda to ISIS to cyber attacks to Russia to now, I believe, disinformation. And I teach a course now at the University of Michigan Law School on national security and civil liberties and kind of the tension between those two things. And I started teaching Robert Mueller's report on the 2016 Russian election interference. And I found it just so fascinating. I was assigning that along with some other readings on disinformation. I was bringing in some speakers, Asha Rangappa and Clint Watts were both former FBI agents who study this space. And I became just fascinated by it. And so I started reading a lot of books on it, a lot of articles on it. And I thought I wanted to write something accessible for an ordinary reader so that they could understand this threat. 
There are so many great parts in your book, Barb, and we want to talk about at least most of them, or at least some of them. But I want to start with the basics because not everybody who's going to tune into this is going to know what terminology means. So if you could just explain for our audience, what does disinformation mean and what does misinformation mean? Yeah, so as I use the term in my book, disinformation is the deliberate use of false information to deceive other people. It might be to manipulate people. It might be for political power. It might be for financial profit, some uh, ulterior motive of the speaker. Misinformation is its sort of unwitting cousin. And that is someone who reads disinformation, assumes it to be true and passes it on to others. And in that way, all of us can be conduits for disinformation. I'll just give you an example, Jill, of misinformation. I know a time when I myself was a useful idiot by passing on uh, disinformation. You're never um, an idiot. Useful, <laughs> yes, but not but an idiot. useful. Yeah. Um, there was uh, an article uh, I saw online posted on you know Twitter or something that said Patrick Mahomes, the star quarterback in the NFL, was refusing to play another snap for the Kansas City Chiefs until the team changed its name to something that was not offensive to Native Americans. And I thought, wow, that's big news. And so I forward, you know, retweeted that. And I thought that was the biggest news of the day. And a little while later, I was talking to my husband and my son and said, did you see the news about Patrick Mahomes? And they said, no, what? And I described it to them and they said, I don't know, that, that sounds a little fishy. I haven't seen that anywhere else. Are you sure that's true? And I started to think about it and I thought, well, sure, I saw it on, on Twitter and I thought, oh, maybe that doesn't sound so good, but I'm pretty sure it was an ESPN account, which is, you know, a, a good, a good, credible brand. So I went back and I found it and I saw that it did see ESPN, but it also said Sprots Center, a misspelling <laughs> of the Sports Center uh, account. And so when I read and dug a little farther, I realized man, this is, this is not being reported anywhere else. It's not true. And I had been duped. And so that's the way that misinformation can really exacerbate, exacerbate the problem of disinformation. And every one of us has had that happen where something that sounds so good, <laughs> it's probably too good to be true. And you need to check it before you retweet it or forward it in any other way. Well, I mean, it seems like disinformation is the real threat here and it existed for, I mean, a long time, but you identified two main reasons why it's um, particularly bad and dangerous right now. Um, first, disinformers and second, emerging technologies. Um, can you explain both and why you think this moment is unlike any other period when disinformation existed? Yeah, you know, so I talk about the idea that uh, we've had propaganda used by leaders throughout history. Hitler used it, Mussolini used it, uh, and some of the same uh, strategies are being used, but in different ways. So first, um, how disinformers are using this information today. In the United States, I think we have people who are using deliberate falsehoods to push us apart, deliberately trying to find fault lines in society because they use what is sometimes referred to as the either or fallacy. So debaters know this trick, and that is to frame the world or frame politics as if there are only two sides to every issue. There is your side, my side. There's the red team and the blue team, conservative, uh, liberal. And then to portray the other side as so evil that they are not a tenable choice. And so if the other side is not tenable, then I am the only choice that is left. And so I think that disinformers are using these uh, divisions in society 
to stoke divisiveness in an effort to gain political support. So I think that is one thing that we are seeing that has been um, gone off the charts. You know, it used to be people wanted to um, moderate uh, in general elections and attract people in the middle. And now it seems that we see people going in just the opposite direction. The more outrageous the statement that they can be, the more they attract followers, uh, the more people get excited about them. And it's about drawing these divisions between people, us versus them, tribe versus truth. The second one is technology. And so, you know, as we said, there was a time when propaganda existed. Maybe there were false leaflets that would disparage some group to um, undermine the, mora the morale of a civilian population or of soldiers. Or a newspaper article picked up a seed of some planted story and then it would get spread. It would take years for the story to really come to fruition. And now, of course, with technology, which has many wonderful attributes, these false claims can be sent worldwide to millions of users with the press of a button. And so some of the things Robert Mueller discovered in his report, for example, was the use of technology for Russian disinformers to spread information about the election. They posed using f false personas as people with names like uh, blacktivist, pretending to be a black activist, when in fact it was someone in a boiler room in Moscow wearing a hoodie, uh, sending out false information. But by developing followers over time and then saying things on the eve of the election, like don't vote for Hillary Clinton, Hillary Clinton doesn't care about the black vote. That, those, those, those messages reached millions of users. We'll never know what influence they actually had on people, but we know that they were out there and people believed them. Millions of people received these and they went to the left and the right. There was another one that posed as something called Tennessee GOP. It looked like a grassroots Republican organization. And instead it was a group of Russians who were pushing false information. Again, they actually planned a rally and hired an actress to wear a rubber Hillary Clinton mask and put on an orange jumpsuit to ride in a cage on the back of a pickup truck that said Hillary Clinton for prison in 2016. And so all of us were duped by these Russian disinformers online and the technology made it so easy for them to be someone different from who, who the, to be someone they were not uh, and to influence people by showing up right in the palms of our hands. It's, it's terrifying, of oh. course. And I'm assuming that Donald Trump is one of the chief disinformers. But unfortunately, he has now got an apparatus that you've mentioned, Russia. But I want to focus because your book is called Attack from Within and focuses on the threat from domestic disinformation. Let's look at the Republican Party, the elected officials, the right wing media, where they are spouting things that have no factual basis. And they know that there is no factual basis. The proof of that is in what is a three quarter billion dollar settlement of the Dominion lawsuit against Fox News, during which you know the discovery phase, Fox admitted it knew these things were false. And there's still another case pending, almost identical from Smartmatics. So what do you think the goal of all of these internal disinformation people are. I, I, it's hard for me to think that they don't think they will be caught with the facts being opposite what they're saying, but they must have a reason and it is working. So what do we do and what's the solution? How do we combat this? 
Yeah. And so you raise a good point, Jill, which is what this book is all about. So what I saw as a threat coming from outside the United States, I now see as a threat from within, an attack from within. And so I think there are a couple of different motives going on here, but there is a symbiotic relationship with, between those who seek political power and those who seek profit. So for example, um, although disinformation can certainly be used by any faction, and it's a reason we need to stop it in its tracks, right now I agree with you that Donald Trump is his greatest purveyor, and there are a lot of uh, facilitators in his party who refuse to call him out. You know, there are people like Liz Cheney who do call him out and then suffer the consequences by being pushed out of her own party when she dares to speak the truth. Uh, people like Mitt Romney, uh, others who decide not to stand for re-election because of the consequences of simply telling the truth. But we see things like, for example, Donald Trump trying to revise history by referring to the January 6th insurrectionists as hostages. These are people who have been charged with crimes for assaulting police officers. And yet he refers to them as hostages. What message does that send to all of his followers when they see that again and again? And then you have those claims amplified by people like Elise Stefanik, Congresswoman in New York, Marjorie Taylor Greene, Congresswoman in Georgia, and people hear it again and again. Um, and then with regard to Fox News, it, it, it came out, as you just said, in the discovery that they initially reported that Donald Trump was losing the election when he lost Arizona and, and Fox News was the first to call it. Viewers stopped watching. They turned the channel. They started watching even more fringe right wing networks like the One America News Network, Breitbart and others because they were hearing something they didn't want to hear, that Donald Trump had lost the election. And so very quickly, they knew they needed to renew the, the faith of those viewers and so according to those discovery documents, they started giving oxygen to the people who were pushing these conspiracy theories, having people like Sidney Powell on air and Rudy Giuliani on air to talk about a stolen election. And as you say, in their depositions, they said they didn't believe for a minute that the election had been stolen. They did it simply for ratings. And so we see fo the Fox News uh, apparatus being used to amplify the claims of Trump because it's profit for Fox News. And Donald Trump values that partnership because it is uh, a, a mouthpiece for him that can amplify his own messages. But one of the strategies that Trump and others use is one that was employed by Adolf Hitler and Joseph Goebbels, who was his information specialist, which was two things that are really important. One. A message must be simple and repeated again and again and again, and no message is too simple. A stolen election. Mm -hmm. And the other is the lie must be a very big lie. To be believed, it must be big because all of us tell small lies from time to time. My husband might say, no, that dress doesn't let make you look fat, dear. Um, or I might say, sure, let's have lunch. Um, those are white lies that we tell each other to make people feel good because we're good people and we care. But as Hitler said, it would never cross most people's minds to have the audacity to tell an enormous lie because you wouldn't think you could get away with it and you would think it would be too ridiculous and you wouldn't have the you know, moral bankruptcy to do it. Uh, and so that is why the big lie actually becomes more believable because people think, who would make that up? If it weren't true, why would people be saying this? And so by repeating again and again and again, the election was stolen, 
people began to believe it. And now we're hearing similar things about um, the FBI is corrupt. Uh, all of these prosecutions against Donald Trump are being run by Joe Biden as election interference. We are here to preserve presidential immunity, something that never existed. Um, and so be, to be told we should preserve it suggests that it is something that existed and that there are people trying to change that status quo. And so we are seeing disinformation being pushed for political gain and for profit motive. It is astounding. And um, I just want to ask if you've ever been to the Propaganda Museum in Miami and to suggest no. you haven't, that it's right up your alley and it does link authoritarians, dictators uh, to what's going on now. Uh, but Victor had a question. Well, I, I have a follow-up question as I was hearing you talk about that. Is there any sort of way that we can make truth that appealing and sort of captivating and facts? I mean, because so much of disinformation, misinformation seems like something that authoritarians use and they've exploited and um, people fall for it. But we all know that truth doesn't travel as fast as these misinformation, I guess, these lies. Is there any way that we can make truth that appealing and, and kind of captivating for people? Yeah, I think that's such an important question, Victor, and I hope so. You know, one of my goals of this book is like, let's just have a national conversation about truth, because I think that there is a large segment of the population that no longer values truth. They care about tribe over truth. I want to be on yeah. Team Red, and there's nothing you can tell me about any issue or any candidate that will ever change my mind. If that's the mindset, then we have lost our ability to self-govern, right? We need to debate based on facts and have a willingness to change our mind. This is something that we see Putin employ in Russia. Putin, of course, grew up in the KGB. He was a KGB uh, officer. He learned the tradecraft of propaganda and information warfare there. And one of the things that Putin does is, number one, um, destroy people's confidence in truth. Truth doesn't matter. Truth is for suckers. Truth is for the naive. What really matters is winning and getting your way and being rich. And so there are inconsistent stories for every dispute and, cons and, and controversy. And it doesn't matter. Uh, you know, when uh, missiles are blowing up uh, over Ukraine, there's one story on Monday and a different story on Tuesday and a third story on Wednesday. And it doesn't matter because the whole point of it is to create what one writer calls a fog of unknowability. Because if truth doesn't matter anymore, and I can't figure out what it is anyway, and I can't possibly keep up, at some point we become angry, and then cynical, and then numb. And once we're numb, we are right where the authoritarian wants us to disengage from politics and say, I can't keep track with what those crooks in Washington do. They're all corrupt. So I just do my thing. I do my job. I keep my head down. And I don't worry about politics. That is the recipe for authoritarianism and the opposite of self-governance. So, you know, listening to you, it reminds me of the best way to know if someone is lying is if they never vary the story. When people tell the truth, it comes out differently every time they say it. And I once had a trial where I did not believe the witnesses I inherited because all three of them were telling the exact same story in the exact same language. And I didn't want to prosecute that case because I knew they were lying. And so... You know, it's a good thing to listen to what you're saying, which is the big lie, which gets repeated and repeated and repeated, is therefore believed. But people who are telling the truth as they learn things change them. And so 
it doesn't sound as compelling and as believable. But if we can, I want to switch to your other point, which is about emerging technologies and that component of your book, because that is so important. It's very relevant. Um, what are the most dangerous emerging technologies that you're concerned about? And what is the solution? How do we combat that? Well, I think um, artificial intelligence is really frightening in all of its permutations because there's so much that can be done with it. So for example, in the New Hampshire primary, there was uh, artificial intelligence used to clone the voice of Joe Biden and create robocalls that went out to lots of households urging Democratic voters to stay home. So that's one way. And it sounded pretty good. It sounded like him. And so imagine you get a robocall, you hear it. It sounds, it says, this is Joe Biden. It sounds just like him. And he tells you to stay home. That is, is terrifying, I think, because there is, you know, this new phenomenon called deep fakes where people can take video uh, and make it look like a leader is saying things that they never said, actually putting words in their mouth, put it on social media, and have that leader say something that they never said. It could be something scandalous. It could be an outright lie. It could be something, you know, we say president's words can crash markets, can, can create wars. And so imagine the harm that can be done with artificial intelligence. Another brand of artificial intelligence are the bots on social media that can amplify messages and make it look like a message is more popular than it otherwise is by doing likes and shares. In fact, it might be one individual person, you know, in a boiler room somewhere in Russia who posts something and then um, they have bots that make it look like lots and lots of people are liking and sharing this thing. And so it, it reaches an ex exponentially larger number of people. That is a real danger as well. Um, in terms of solutions, uh, I think we'll probably always be one step behind, just as law enforcement is often one step behind creative scams. But you can't give up. You have to always be trying to uh, solve whatever is the current scam, even if you know another one might be coming down the road. And I think with regard to artificial intelligence and bots, there are some good solutions out there already. One is there's a researcher at the University of Michigan Dearborn here who is creating um, artificial intelligence to detect artificial intelligence, which I think is amazing. And so it can watch, for example, a video of someone, say Joe Biden, making some sort of statement or can listen to the voice of Joe Biden. And because it has been fed hours and hours and hours of Joe Biden video or Joe Biden audio, it can detect when there is a fake, which is usually a you know, splintering of words here, words there, mashed up together to sound pretty good. But this artificial intelligence program can detect those fakes. So that could be incredibly valuable for detecting a fake. Um, with regard to bots, I think that we are due for a reckoning with regulation of social media, certainly not uh, regulating all content. I think that would go beyond the purview of the First Amendment. But there are a lot of things we can do to regulate social media. And one of them is to eliminate bots, to make it uh, prohibited to use bots online so that if somebody is online, I also think we should prohibit anonymity online so that if someone is online, it really is Victor Xi or it really is Joe Weinbanks making a statement and not uh, Patriot Girl or Heart of Texas, who is in fact some Russian operative or you know far right or far left operative within the United States. Well, certainly X is not helping with that as now anyone can get a blue verified check mark and pretend to be anyone. Um, but part of the reason, and Jill and I, we often have these conversations about intergenerational sort of solutions. And one of the sort of 
I guess, problems or I guess reasons why I think we see this is because we aren't really doing a good job teaching information and news literacy to um, young people in schools. Um, you're a professor, so I, I want to ask you what you think can be done to make sure that we do do a better job at teaching young people about how to distinguish fact from fiction so that when they're online, they know how to sort of tell. Such an important question, Victor. And I think critical thinking is the most important thing we can teach our young people. Um, I have some friends who sometimes bemoan that teaching these days isn't what it used to be. Kids don't learn how to write cursively. They don't really need to write cursively anymore. Or um, they don't, uh, you know, memorize uh, the state capitals anymore. Or they don't learn, I don't know, you know, memorize poems anymore. Well, you know, you can look this stuff up. And I think that we need to evolve the way we teach young people about being a citizen in this world. And one of them, I think the most important thing is critical thinking. In fact, in Finland, a place that has suffered from Russian disinformation for decades because of its neighbor, uh, Russia next door, does teach uh, critical uh, media literacy to students. And so they learn things like, when you see something, you should look for a second source. You should question the source. Is this a, a uh, newspaper that has credibility, or is this just some guy on Twitter? Um, when you look at data and statistics, is the statistic being used in a misleading way, or does the data seem sound? And so, you know, for example, there's a, you know, a study that says um, families who eat dinner together have children who are more likely to be successful in school. Does that mean if you have dinner together, your child will suddenly become more successful in school? <laughs> well, no, it means that there are a lot of other factors probably going on, right? If you have dinner together as a family, you probably have a stable household, you have a roof over your head, you have sufficient income to afford a meal every night. And so there are a lot of good things going on. And so a um, critical thinking means, you know, teaching students to step back when they see data like that and think about what are all the causes? How big was the data set? Uh, are there other factors that could be going on here? And so I think there are a lot of things we can do to teach people about um, media education. I think another piece of education, Victor, that's really important too, is civics education. Yeah. I think people can be misled about the dangers of our government when they don't understand how it works. So again, the idea that Donald Trump is talking about preserving presidential immunity, um, teaching people about the separation of powers and the three uh, branches of government and how our government works and checks and balances is critically important. And I think anybody who has even a basic understanding of that knows how preposterous it is to suggest that a president cannot be charged with a crime. You know, it, it's so interesting to listen to this. And, you know, Victor and I do often have conversations that go from my generation to his and the civics lessons that each of us got, which are very different. Um, I, of course, never had all of the input that he has. There was no social media. There were no computers. I had, you know, a limited access to television, a limited access to printed newspapers that had editors and fact checkers and could rely on information much more easily than now where you get information just bombarding you. And I think that's really an important thing. Um, you know, your book is so important in so many ways. And you talk about ways that disinformation has sabotaged America, national security, our rule of law. And what do you think the thing we should focus on fixing the most? What's the most concerning to you? Because these are serious threats 
and, and right now with the 2024 election, fast approaching. We yeah. need to make sure that the facts are clarified and that people are voting based on reality, not the crazy stuff that they're reading or getting on TikTok. Well, one thing I really worry about, Jill, is um, disinformation around elections. This is an election year. Um, if 2020 was any indication, I think we can expect more in 2024. After 2020, we saw some states um, enact laws that make it harder for people to vote. And so I think we need to make sure people are educated about how to vote. And if things have become harder since 2020, we need to make sure people know what they need to do to vote today. Donald Trump is already talking about how voting by mail is uh, a recipe for fraud. And of course it is. And nobody should vote by mail and undermining the credibility. He's already um, putting out you know, the story, uh, uh, laying the groundwork for a, a, a claim of a stolen election in 2024 when you hear him saying these things about voting by mail. So it seems to me the most urgent thing we need to do is to safeguard this election. And we can do that, I think, with good volunteers getting out there to make sure voters are registered and voters know how to vote in their own district, especially when laws may have been changed since the last election to make it harder for them to vote. Um, as, as you're talking about that, I, I want to ask you, um, for that group in particular, the Republicans who are sort of primed um, by sort of Trump and this far right movement uh, to believe in election lies and to believe that the election might be stolen. Is there any way that we as, as Democrats, as people who just care about facts and truth can do to reach those voters and whether it's individual conversations or online sort of can we even reach them at this point? Yeah, I think so, Victor. And I, I don't think, you know, all hope is lost. Um, Joyce Vance, our colleague and fellow sister-in-law podcast co-host, um, actually wrote something very interesting in her Substack newsletter called Civil Discourse. It's excellent. I recommend it to everyone. And she mentioned a study where, um, you know, a number of Fox viewers were, um, for, you know, a week or some period of time, were shown um, only other networks and not Fox News. And you know, before the, the week, they took a survey about their attitudes of things. And then after they watched these other news sources, they were asked again about their attitudes and some had changed. And so it demonstrates that minds are changeable if we can just get to people. And I think there are ways to persuade people, Victor, but you have to have some humility in how we do that. So we all have friends, we all have relatives, we all have neighbors, and we can have conversations with them. But I don't think it does a lot of good to start you know, lecturing them about how they're wrong or they're stupid or they're bad or they're evil. Um, I think the way we get there is through uh, recognizing our common humanity, what we have in common, and asking questions about, you know, what are your thoughts on this? Have you thought about this? Have you thought about that? How did you reach your conclusion? What's the basis for thinking uh, the conclusion that you've come up with? And you may be able to find that there is some... Uh, you know, a, a, a predicate there that doesn't really stick. Like, well, I heard Donald Trump refer to the January 6th people as hostages. And so the government is um, jailing them for no reason. And you can say, you know, I used to be a prosecutor. And before we could charge somebody, did you know that they have to be indicted by a grand jury? And do you know who grand jury members are? Well, they're people like us. They're ordinary citizens. And so I, I think that we might be able to cr you know, cross those bridges with our neighbors but we have to do it in a way that does not make them feel defensive or talked down to. And that can be difficult. 
or angry, which can also be difficult. But I think recognizing that we have more in common than we have differences uh, is a good place to start. It is a good place to start, but I've tried and I know how frustrating it can be because the true Trumpers do not accept the reality, the facts. They have a view that there were suitcases under the tables of ballots that got stuffed into the voting. They believe that there were machines that flipped votes and they don't believe that 60 cases were thrown out. And they don't believe that the ninjas hired by the Republicans in Arizona found more votes for Biden and fewer for Donald Trump. And, and that's where it gets frustrating to me in trying to have this discussion. We, we talked to a group of young act, activists, um, some really amazing young people uh, last week. And it was amazing to hear how they are approaching convincing other people about what the facts are. And they haven't given up. They really believe that they can change minds. And I, I, you know, it may be better with young people because they aren't as firm in their beliefs as people my age who have fallen for this. Um, are you optimistic that we can overcome this disinformation battle? And what makes you optimistic? Yeah, I, I don't know, but I think it's really important that we try because I think the stakes are just too high. I, I think that there are people who are reachable. You know, there are those who are truly misled who believe these things to be true um, because of what they've heard or they're in this uh, ecosphere where all they hear is Fox News and they hear what their friends and neighbors are saying. And they see their friend group on Facebook, which is an information bubble, and that's all they see and hear. And so they need to hear from other people. I think one-on-one -on -one conversations is the way to approach people because I think when we're alone with people talking, um, we, we lose some of those uh, defensive edges that we might have in groups. But I think there's another segment, Jill, that is um, really problematic. And that is those who don't believe the lies, but go along with them anyway. I think there are people like Ted Cruz and Josh Hawley in the Senate, who certainly know better than to say the election was stolen, but they go along with it because it advances their political agenda. And so who else is out there who doesn't really believe any of this stuff, who's just going along with it? Those are the people that we really need to uh, address because those are the people who are, I think, enemies of democracy. Facts matter. We need to make policy choices based on facts, but they're the ones who are engaging in this either or fallacy that you have to be politically pure, all Republican, all red, because to really get anything done in this country as a government, we need to compromise. We can't have uh, both a uh, a completely closed border and comply with our treaties on refugees and um, uh, other, other treaty obligations that we have, um, nor can we open the floodgates and let everyone in. We have to have compromise. And instead, we'd rather have political disagreements because that's what roils voters and gets people acting up and says the other team is the enemy. Uh, we're on our team. If we really want to solve this problem, we have to acknowledge that there are good arguments on both sides of this immigration debate and how we resolve this is likely to require compromise. And so until we do that, I think we are in for um, a, a lot of stalemate and division. Um, but I think that there are those people that um, we can approach one-on-one -on -one and have conversations with. And those are the people who give me optimism. I'll tell you who else gives me optimism, Jill, are young people. I work with law students every day and our law students care deeply about facts and truth. They're very dismayed by what they see 
among some of our leaders, and they give me hope that they are going to work to advance the rule of law and use it in a way that will advance democracy and defeat authoritarianism. Yeah, I mean, Victor gives me hope every day and conversations with his friends that I have had give me hope. And this conversation we just had with three fabulous activists make me feel that our future is more secure than it might be. But then I talk to Trumpers and I, I'm afraid I sort of go, well, at least for now, those people are gone. And then I take comfort in the fact that there are fewer of them than there are of us and that it's up to us to get out the vote and to get the facts out in any way we can. I even signed up for TikTok because I'm told that if you want the facts to get out, you're gonna to have to put it on TikTok. I haven't posted anything yet. I watched President Biden on TikTok. That's why I signed up. All right. And so uh, Victor will teach me how to use TikTok so that I can help get a message out. I'm not the best at it either, but um, again, the book is called Attack from Within, How Disinformation is Sabotaging America. And the best part about it is that I feel like I'm one of uh, your students, Professor McQuaid, um, and I think everyone else who reads it feels the same way. So thank you so much for um, writing the book. Well, thanks so much. I really appreciate the chance to talk about it with both of you. We hope that everyone listening, we're going to post a link to it, of course, in our show notes. We hope everyone will get the book, read the book, and act on its advice. And, and speaking of advice, Victor usually has a final, final last question. Victor? Well, we usually like to ask all our guests, um, because it is an intergenerational podcast, what you would say to the young people out there, um, whether it's law students, people who are thinking about going to public service. Um, what is your message to the young people uh, in, in this world? Um, you have to raise your hand and say, um, I want to try. I think that very often people think that um, when you get opportunities, it's because someone tapped you on the shoulder. Uh, and you sometimes hear politicians say this, and maybe it's even true, but they'll say things like, I was asked to run for office. And in my experience, no, no, nobody asked you for stuff. You gotta, you gotta step up. You have to put your neck out there and say, I would like to try. And so if there's something you believe you're qualified for, uh, even if it is a stretch and you want an opportunity, you need to ask for it. So don't be shy about asking for opportunities. You might get some rejection along the way, but at some point you will get the opportunity, but only if you ask. So don't wait to be asked. You gotta raise your hand. Great advice. Very, very true. Thank you, Barb, for writing the book. Thank you for being my sisters-in-law, part of my sisters-in-law. And thank you for joining Victor and me today. We loved our conversation. Thanks so much. It was great to be with you both. Jill, that was such a fascinating episode. Um, you know, Barb really has so much valuable insight and experience um, to make her write this book. And uh, we hope everyone will buy the book. But I want to ask you about um, her last piece of advice, because I know um, you might have some thoughts on it. Yes, um, I agree, of course, with what she said, but I have one small thing that I really think would help everyone. And that is you're reading online anyway. And every article that's published has a hot link to underlying information. So when you read that someone was indicted, don't just take the writer's opinion of what it was. You can click on the indictment. And these days they're not written in legalese. You can read it and know. You can look at what is the history of the issue you're dealing with. Those hot links are there for a reason. It's what will make you a really informed voter. And so when I say 60 cases were dismissed, proving that there was no fraud in the election, 
I can look up those 60 cases by clicking on a link. And I just think that's really important. So click through is my advice. Yes. And that is uh, hopefully something that, um, you know, we can we can teach everyone out there and uh, your commentary and people who are on TV help us parse through that in a great way. Um, but, you know, they are they are. It's one of the things I'm concerned about because the right wing, they've made it so that no one believes in what the court says. No one believes in the underlying material. They they look at a, a, what a judge writes and they immediately dismiss it. And that's what's scary about this moment is that I don't think that they would even do that. Um and so I I hope that you know they they do and they they treat that information seriously and and with the sort of credibility it deserves. It it really is the only way to save our democracy is to have a clear understanding of what the truth is, and propaganda is effective. We know that truth is slippery. It's just not as compelling, and so you need to really know it. And, you know, another piece of advice we got from Ian Sams in an earlier episode was that if people want to persuade other people, whatever issue they're passionate about, they should spend time really understanding that issue and having the facts. Now, you may be passionate about more than one. Fine. Learn about more than one. But if you can just talk about the one thing that really matters the most to you, you'd be amazed at how persuasive that can be. Learn debate skills. We've had other people say that. Sorry, sorry. One thing: it's Simon Rosenberg, not um, Ian. Oh, it's, oh, sorry. I thought it was Ian Sams who said that. Okay, let's do that again. Um, sorry, I, I was trying to look at the camera, not at you, and so it took yeah, a while yeah. for me to see the hand waving. Uh, where should I start again? Uh, just start at maybe. Um, and and we had on Simon Rosenberg who. Okay. And. One of the things I learned from Simon Rosenberg, who was on an earlier episode that you should listen to because he was really good, was that one of the most important ways for you to be persuasive is to learn one subject really well. So, for example, if you're trying to persuade people to vote for Joe Biden, learn one issue that you are really passionate about. Get the facts so that when you talk to people who go, I don't know who I should vote for, you can really explain to them passionately and factually why they should based on whatever that issue is for you. I thought that was a really good advice. Don't be overwhelmed by there's the economy, there's Ukraine, there's Gaza, there's abortion, there's guns. Yes, all of those are important, but pick the one that you care the most about or the two or three that you care the most about and feel comfortable with that. Um, we also had a group of young activists. And one of the things that Olivia said was that she had learned debate in, I think it was high school. Was it high school, Victor? High school, yes. And that that enabled her to really do critical thinking and to see that there are two sides, but only one is true. And right. so, um, or is only true to your values. And that's a good skill to have. If you're young enough to still be in school, you might want to sign up for a debate club or a debate team. I, I, think, I think I think those are uh, well, first of all, I, I'll couple your advice or the thing that Simon Rosenberg said with another guest we had, John Kirby. And one of the things he said at the end really stuck with me, which was that as communicators, you are never done 
communicating. You always have more to do. And so don't just stop with one conversation. Keep on having those conversations every day until election day. Um, they matter. Uh, you're not, you're never done communicating. So I think that's also some good advice to Marianne to uh, what Simon Rosenberg said. But you know, go, maybe that's an interesting topic to talk about, which is what we did in high school, what we did in college to sort of think about the world in a, in a deeper way. I remember in high school, I was um, a part of this great program uh, done by the Illinois YMCA, and it was called Youth in Government. They had a legislative and a judicial track. The legislative track, and in every March, they would basically rent out the entire Capitol complex for a few days and allow students to go in there and become sort of their counterparts. And so I was a part of the judicial branch, and we did moot court, and it was we would write 30-page briefs every year, and um, students would act as judges and ask us questions, and it was such like that memory, that that activity really stuck with me um, in a way that you know I still use a lot of the sort of methods that I was taught. You know, knowing an issue, looking at the rule of law, applying it, contrasting, comparing. I mean, it was it was really awesome, and so uh, that was a formative part of my sort of high school experience. Uh, I'm not a part of anything in college quite like that, but um, that at least for high school was really what stuck out to me, and I think is part of the sort of how I look at facts and information. What about you, Jill? Well, first of all, that's amazing. And I, before I answer you, were you in the Illinois Supreme Court building? It was the Illinois Supreme Court building and we were in the main, I, I don't know which chamber it courtroom, is. Yeah. Courtroom. Well, there's only one Supreme Court courtroom. Yes, yes. yes. Uh, and it is beautiful, isn't it? It's a gorgeous, I actually argued a case. I mean, a, oh, for real, a real Supreme Court. I actually argued a case in front of the Supreme Court. Um, and it's, it's, a, it's, and before the U.S. Supreme Court as well, which is really an intimidating courtroom. The Illinois Supreme Court is much warmer and easier to be in, but the, I did not have anything like moot court in either high school or college. I did run a symposium on civil liberties and took a political science constitutional law course in preparation for that and learned uh, how to read a case and of course, as part of that, you learn how to analyze the law, the facts, the language of the statute, the political history of it, the legislative history rather. Um, so I did learn that in my junior year in that particular class. And then of course, learned it in law school. But this raises a topic for me, which is you are very soon to complete your college classwork. Um, so let's talk about the fact that you're finishing college, you'll you'll actually come back for your formal graduation, but you're going to be out of college in like a month. And let's talk about what you're going to do when you get out. Well, I mean, because it's um, we're on a quarter system as opposed to a traditional semester school system, we only have 10 week, um, I guess, uh, week, I guess 10 week periods of school. And so um, I'm going to be done in literally four weeks uh, with with my with my senior year of college, which feels um, shorter because COVID uh, sent us all home. And so I didn't go to college my first quarter. I was working on the Biden campaign. Um, and right now I can't say too much about it, but um, I will be uh, um, hopefully uh, I'll, I can share more in the future about um, my role on the Biden campaign. But um, I'm very excited about that. And then, you know, later down the line, law school, I think Jill has definitely inspired me to, to go down that path. And so um uh, although it's very expensive now, but that that's another possibility as well. But it's all sort of coming together. And it, it's just so surreal to think about, like, I'm going to be done with undergrad in just a few weeks. 
It's were quite you? amazing. It's, I mean, I've known you since you graduated high school. You, in yeah. fact, I think maybe right before you graduated. Before, so yeah. we've, we've been together for a long time and I've gotten to watch you grow up and see your future, uh, which of course I see you being in politics. You're such a natural at it um, and are so passionate about the issues and are so smart about them. Um, so it'll be great to continue following what happens to you. Um, when I was graduating college, I went straight to law school. Um, and I, I mean, I remember the summer before I left and going to New York, I went to law school in New York to find an apartment to live in. It was the first time I had lived independently. Um, I was rooming with a friend from college uh, who was going to graduate school at Columbia and I was going to the law school there. And um, I mean, it's such an excitement to graduate and go on to whatever is next, even if yeah. more likely today you do a series of things and take, you know, um, a gap year or something. And uh, it's going to be very exciting to hear what you're doing and how you're doing. Oh, thank you. Well, it's been an honor and, and such a thrill to co-host this podcast. Um, and we have many more coming your way. So uh, don't go anywhere. Um, we'll be back next week with a brand new episode of iGen Politics. Um, in the meantime, you can follow us wherever you follow your podcasts. Um, if you listen to us, uh, be sure to also give us a rating as that helps others find this podcast and it helps this podcast tremendously. If you want to watch us and see Jill's pins uh, and through video, you can do that through uh, youtube.com slash Politicon. Uh, you can subscribe to us there, like our video there, drop us a comment. Um, that would be awesome. Thank you everyone for watching or listening. We will see you next week.